Welcome to the podcast of Scientific Imagination. The first step is to realize that we're always already using images all the time. Yeah. It's just we don't recognize them as images. That's Plato's allegory is, is showing that, right? That the prisoners are sitting in the cave and they're watching shadows. Mm-hmm. And that's all they know. So first of all, they cannot imagine anything outside of that. Mario Fein completed the Interdisciplinary Research Master Cultural Analysis at the University of Amsterdam. He did his PhD in Discursive Psychology and Technology Assessment at the Wageningen University the Netherlands. Mario has been doing educational research ever since and recently started working as an associate professor at the University of Applied Sciences in Utrecht. As an existential journalist, Mario produces and hosts the interdisciplinary philosophy podcast Life from Plato's Cave. In this independent educational project, he interviews philosophers, scientists, artists, activists and other experts on the interpretation of Plato's allegory of the cave. But Mario. Hello. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. And uh, let's just dive right in. This is a podcast about the role and the function of imagination in your daily life and also in your profession. Could you describe what the role of imagination is in your everyday life and when do you use imagination? Well, yeah, I'm moving houses in a few days and <laughs> that started as an act of imagination. So You know, I live in the house where I'm sitting right now. You see all the moving boxes behind me. Mm -hmm. And it started with, well, what if we had more space? What if we lived a little bit more outside of the city? You know, these kind of what if questions, trying to picture it. And then looking at different houses. And then the moment you look at different houses that you can afford, you're... Yeah, imagination starts to run wild a little mm-hmm. bit, but yeah. also connect with what is possible. And yeah, and now, I, now I'm moving houses in a few days. So yeah, that's that's one example. And another example is when I practice Tai Chi. Mm-hmm. When So in Tai Chi, you're, you're supposed to imagine that you're, you look at yourself from mm-hmm. the outside. So you're imagining that your body is a whole and that you're seeing the movements. So, for instance, one thing, the hands are very important in Tai Chi. And one thing you do is you imagine that the energy goes to your hands or that the intention goes to your hands. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a way, well, maybe a little bit like moving houses. It starts with imagining it. And then, you, yeah, sometimes you feel it, sometimes you don't feel it. And another way is more like a spiritual imagination, I would say. So mm-hmm. even if it's cloudy, I imagine that it will be sunny tomorrow <laughs> and I know the sun is always there. So I would say that's also, yeah, kind of always having hope and having faith, but you also need your imagination sometimes because sometimes the reality around you doesn't reflect that. Yeah. So your imagination also has to do, or the, the examples that you mentioned with the wishes that you have in life, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you're an academic as well, a researcher, and you have your own podcast called Live from Plato's Cave. Could you elaborate on on the podcast and your work? Yeah, well, it's nice to be on the other side sometime, (laughs) you know, answering questions. But I'll I'll get to have my revenge because you're also coming on my podcast, right? Oh, yes. Be be careful. (laughs) No, yeah. So I'm an academic. I started studying cultural analysis and did also before that the interdisciplinary 
bachelor. So I've always thought like interdisciplinarily. I don't know if that's a word. So I've always been doing that, but then also uh, I've been working at the Erasmus University Medical Center for the general practitioners training, where I now work as an assistant professor in educational research. Mm -hmm. So that's also yeah part of that. But I, outside of that, as you know, because I published an article on your website, so yes. that that article I published as an in independent researcher, and. Yeah, this podcast live from Plato's Cave is a podcast where I interview experts like philosophers, scientists, artists, activists, and I interview them about their in interpretation of Plato's allegory of the cave and their vision of growth and development in life. So that's obviously very broad, but it's very nice to get a you know different answer from a geologist or uh, a philosopher. Mm -hmm. yeah. And yeah, that's it's also kind of a ni nice happy mess because everything feeds back into each other. So sometimes I use things for my podcast in my work. Sometimes I yeah, like that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's how these things work, right? Mm -hmm. You said that the the Plato's Cave, the podcast, is about growth and development in life, and that answers depending on the discipline, maybe really really differ. Do you think that our education has something to do with how we frame the world, how we look at the world, our outlook? Do you mean that in a sense, like the education that we have? Yeah, or, the education, or maybe like if you ask a geologist about mm -hmm. growth and development in his or her life, it differs maybe from how a philosopher would answer that question, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think that the education that they had influenced their 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 answer on on this question yeah i think so but it can be positively or negatively mm, because well there's if if i look at the dutch education system but i think it's in many education system you have this let's say hidden curriculum mm -hmm. so you have the the curriculum yeah which is explicit but there's also the hidden curriculum which tells you about for instance yeah, what is important, how to relate to other people. Ah. And in the hidden curriculum, there's also an implicit idea about what means growth and what is development. So yeah, obviously getting good grades is growth. But if you sometimes if you listen to interviews of, you know, geniuses or, or artists or whatever, they uh, many times they didn't have good grades in, in school. <laughs> ah. So, but it can also, I think the danger is that you start to internalize this idea of the kind of the education system, which is focused on performance, efficiency, performing well in society, but of course society today. And if you start to internalize that, it can kind of limit your idea of what growth and development actually looks like. Yeah. So it's very focused on, well, just there's a lot to say about it one one thing is it's focused a lot on external things so mm -hmm. having a job doing well in life all those kind of things yeah yeah and speaking about the hidden curriculum you indeed wrote a wonderful article thank you for that for the website future based oh, thanks called earth earth education using interdisciplinary philosophy education and science communication to understand the climate crisis. What was the purpose of this article? And you wrote it as an independent researcher as well. Hmm. Why and how? Yeah, in a sense, I, I don't know where I've read this term, but I feel like a climate bro. 
<laughs> which is like you know the, especially the last years is it's these men i guess that that start to realize whoa we're in a very big problem i mean i was busy with that before but mm. start to realize that and then start you know studying it a little bit and then explaining to everybody what or mansplaining sometimes oh did you know we're in a climate crisis and everything so yeah i mean that's that's one way of looking at it but it's just I try to be modest in that because even though I've been busy with this topic of climate, yeah, a large part of my life, mm-hmm. it hasn't been really like the focus of my work. And since October last year, it became really the focus of my work. And this article is kind of summarizing, yeah, where I stand now. Yeah. What How I did see- it become the focus of your work? Did something shift? I mean, in in your view on the world or or did it just naturally steer it in that direction it was kind of there well speaking about imagination i always Mm -hmm. imagined that i would do something Mm -hmm. having to do with what in 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 my youth we called the environment i don't think we use that term so much anymore but the environment or nature or something like that but my life didn't really go that way but i always imagined that yeah, some sometime I can do my part in there. And I saw many different parts that, that I could do. Like I could join Extinction Rebellion. I could join Greenpeace or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I didn't feel like that that would be my path. And so it was kind of there up in the air. And then someone threw tona- tomato soup at the painting. Yes. And that was an interesting moment because it was a Van Gogh painting, the sunflowers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is climate activist, right? Yeah, the climate activist from Just Stop Oil. I think this was in London. Yeah. yeah. They they threw this soup at the painting. And I heard this in the news as I was reading Van Gogh's letters. Because oh. just before I, I had become very, again, I don't know much about art. I was, yeah, I went to the Van Gogh Museum. I got like this museum pass in the Netherlands. You can go for free to all the museums. So I just kind of got addicted to paintings, looking at Vermeer, Rembrandt, Van Gogh. So I had this deep appreciation of, yeah, Van Gogh's paintings in his letters. And then someone threw, I mean, that's the most horrible thing you can do. Of course, I should say that they didn't throw it at the painting, they threw it at the glass and they did their research. So they knew they wouldn't damage the painting and all Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. But then it's, it was like this clash of two interests. And I think that's when it started. (laughs) So it really hit close to home. Mm -hmm. That's what was happened. And then you, then it opened up a new path in, Hey, I could do something with climate with climate crisis, which we should call it, right? And you started writing or thinking about climate crisis more? Yeah, it was more that not so much I want to do something, but I want to understand it. Because there were two things like a clash. I mean, for instance, I could imagine what if I was in a museum and I I saw an activist about to throw soup at the painting. So that was my imagination, Mm -hmm. right? Would I stop them or not? Because on the one hand, yeah, I support them for sure. 100%. I think they're heroes. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, yeah. So <laughs> that was the dilemma. And I wanted to understand that because if we want our children and grandchildren to have a life, well, not even similar to ours, but remotely livable, we better start acting. We better start doing something. 
and that means that some things that we we take for granted and then we cherish they have to change but the moment you start to speak about things that having to change people also get stuck yeah so and i saw these conversations about the, also the the climate activists how they're misrepresented and also yeah all the kind of standard i guess that was more my discourse analysis lens yeah i saw all these conversational patterns and we're not getting anywhere so I'm tr- I want to understand, and I still don't understand, like, how can we have a normal conversation collectively yeah. about this huge crisis that we're in, and we're, we're not doing it. And yeah. so that's what I want to understand. Mm-hmm. And you used, I hear you say that to, to clear your vision about what was happening at that moment in the museum. You used the imagination and you conducted some sort of thought experiment. What if I was there? Would I have stopped them? And why wouldn't I stop them? Or why would I stop them, right? Yeah. So you investigated your own values regarding the artwork in contrast to their message, what they wanted to bring across. To circle back to to Plato's cave and to connect it to climate crisis as well, because one of the major topics in your podcast series is the climate crisis. Am I right? Yeah, it, I didn't plan it that way, but yeah. So, so I guess like you, there was this this door that you never really closed. It was always like a little bit open. I want to do something with climate crisis, or I want to do something with the environment. Well, yeah, I mean, I work now as an educational researcher at MES for, I think, 11 years or something now. So I also decided to, on the side, also do my own research and my own work. Yeah, And I'm still, yeah, really so much in that process. But I really, what I really value is the, the time to be able to study by yourself with, yeah. without anybody looking over your shoulder and just doing it the, really the way you want it. Yeah, for example, by, by publishing podcasts <laughs> and writing on, on interdisciplinary uh, philosophy platforms yeah. like Future-Based. <laughs> like Future-Based, um, yeah. So that's why I'm really happy to talk to you because, I mean, isn't it amazing? You can just do what you want. You can, you yeah. can contact someone. Hey, do you want to talk to me and record the conversation? It's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think it's really freeing. And I love conversations like this and connecting with all sorts of disciplines and people to talk about important topics like climate change, but also the role of imagination in sciences, something that I think is highly undervalued. I wanted to circle back because we were drifting a little bit away from from what the point I wanted to make. It was about the climate crisis in your podcast series. And then you wrote this wonderful article for Future Based, which is also about the climate crisis. And it both as well as the podcast, as this article is a way, like you mentioned, to communicate about the state of the planet that we are in at the moment. Yeah. So how would you say that communication about the state of the planet and our own role in the climate crisis how would you say that publishing about it contributes to our awareness about it? It's maybe an open door, but I would mm-hmm. like to to know your your perspective on it. The number one thing you can do about the climate crisis is talk about it. Because, well, we can talk about other taboos like the Me Too and the history of slavery and all those things. Like, what's the what's the number one thing that people do or don't do? 
to not address it is just ignore it. Pretend it doesn't exist. Don't talk about it. And the moment you talk about it, you're kind of showing that you're not adhering to the social norms. Mm -hmm. So it can be dangerous for you in different ways. If you're the one in a meeting saying at your company saying, hey, shouldn't we have a vegetarian lunch? I mean, that food is very intimate for people. So that can be very threatening that, oh, they they want to take my meat away. Mm -hmm. So I think just, just the act of talking about it is already, yeah, a, a really big, important step. Mm -hmm. It's important that we discuss it. I mean, it's critical that we discuss it. At the same time, it criticizes the way we have lived and it yeah. can feel really threatening to discuss these kinds of, of, of topics. For example, stop eating meat or stop flying, stop using planes. Yeah. It's really, it is also addressing your, your way of life and what you value in life. So I can imagine that the conversation very easily getting very personal. Mm -hmm. So would you say that because Plato's Cave is really indeed discussing the climate crisis, that an allegory like Plato's Cave is a way to open up this conversation yeah. by using the imagination? Yeah, well, that, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. I'm thinking about one of the metaphors that climate scientists use sometimes about like having a fever. So if they're explaining, because we're talking about like one and a half degrees warming two degrees well they're just numbers i mean it's just half a degree yeah. what what does it matter but if they start to explain okay but what if you have like one and a half degrees how do you say that increase in temperature yeah your your body and okay you, if you have two degrees fever well that's kind of you're worrying really sick. but imagine yeah. you have three or four degrees yeah. then you're in immersion then you have to go to the emergency room and that's like a way of using i guess that's uh, metaphorical reasoning so you use the metaphor of the earth and the human body and then increase in temperature and that can open something up so using images and all those like plato's cave is also an image but it's like an yeah it's a very interesting image <laughs> yeah <laughs> because it's like this architecture you can walk around in and it also it kind of gives you room but it also resists and if you have that with two people, you can, yeah, I think you can have a meaningful conversation about something like that. You were just mentioning that when your body temperature increases with one or two degrees, you can imagine, I mean, almost all of us can imagine you are feeling really sick. <laughs> Would you say that this is some form of a scientific imagination? So a, a scientific metaphor to get insight into a scientific problem? Well, it yeah, well, you use the language of science, mm -hmm. but I mean, language of science is used a lot like in, I don't know, like who said that Rutte, like we have to take 100% of the decisions with 50% of the knowledge. <laughs> in, I think that was during Corona, but then yeah. you're kind of, you're, you're using the discourse of science. And so in that way, yes, but also science uses a lot of metaphors right if you if you speak about for instance gravitational waves mm -hmm. i mean there's one way of science communication in using metaphors when mm -hmm. you say well it's like a wave but it's also a, a way of discovery right or is is you know fundamental light is it like a wave or like a particle but at that level there are no you know if we think about a wave like a wave in the ocean or something like that we can have this image of light as a wave and light as, as a particle is like this billiard ball and so that's that's also 
I don't know if I'm making any sense, but using images and metaphors is, I think, very essential to science and scientific. Yeah. And you're saying that that you can use different images of the same phenomenon. Yeah, because you are already... <laughs> the first step is to realize that we're always already using images all the time. Yeah. It's just we don't recognize them as images. No. Just as we're... I mean, if you ask about imagination, we are using... That's Plato's allegory is, is showing that, right? That the prisoners are sitting in the cave and they're watching shadows. Mm -hmm. And that's all they know. So first of all, they cannot imagine anything outside of that. But they also imagine that when they, the shadow of the cat in their imagination, it's a real cat. So they're already, we're already using our imagination. We live inside our imagination. Yeah. But, and, but the first step is to realize that. And then you can talk about, well... Are there other, so imagining an alternative. So when you try to, so we already live in the imagination that capitalism, whatever it is, because I don't really know what capitalism is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, if I ask experts, they cannot tell me in one set sentence, right? But we're imagining we're in, living in capitalism and there's no alternative. So that's the, the quote I use in the article as well. Like it's easier to imagine the end of the world than yeah. the end of capitalism. Yeah. It means that we cannot imagine something and that's so, so in science, if you're working in physics or something, you also, you usually you're working on problems that have been there for ages already, and you're trying to kind of crack them open. So one way to crack them open is to say, what if, and then the rest follows, <laughs> it yeah. starts with what if. Yeah. Yeah. I think that imagination is always a reductionist view of reality. Our imagination can't comprehend everything that's going on. So we always use a reductionist view of what we try to imagine, including what we find important in this imagination. Mm -hmm. My question is, because you were mentioning that it was easier, it is easier for us to, to imagine the, the end of the world than imagine the end of capitalism yeah, yeah. <laughs> so okay. it's like one example of that is like it's easier to imagine mining stuff from the moon going there in spaceships mm -hmm. and mining stuff there mm -hmm. and bringing it back to earth and i don't know shooting it in the atmosphere or something yeah. i read yeah. a newspaper about then to say yeah, but what if we yeah. start to invest in isolating homes and not yeah. investing? <laughs> this really strikes a chord. Yes, that's a, that's another side of imagination, right? But yeah, just the idea of of moving to Mars and terraforming Mars—it's ridiculous. I mean, if you can do that, then then solving the climate crisis that will be peanuts. And I'm, I think, yeah. That, I, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I mean, I have to play a little bit the the, the devil's advocate here mm -hmm. because I I think there are two things going on. On the one hand, I talk a lot with a space scientists, and I think that they are not necessarily focused on colonizing Mars. I think it's it's more about the exploration, yeah, exactly. um, about the wonderment and curiosity of pursuing such a mission. Mm -hmm. I think in a way it is connected to what is happening here on earth on the other way it's so detached from from and they really do care about the, the climate crisis and they really do care about earth it's not about bringing mankind to mars it is all about imagining how we would live there how we would live in this hostile environment what we would scientifically need to survive there 
Yeah. But don't you think we should figure out how to survive in a friendly environment first? No, because absolutely. the earth is so amazingly friendly yeah, for us. No, absolutely. And, yeah. No, but, but I, I don't get what think you, that yeah. that I don't think that the, the space sector should be accounted for that. You know? It's No, not, I completely agree. Do, yeah. do you know the hundred year Starship project? No, no. It's it's a project where it's like also a thought exercise that within a hundred years we have a starship. So we go to the nearest stars. Mm -hmm. But it's not, it's also about going there, but it's also about what would you need? What would you need to have on board? So for mm -hmm. instance, a hundred years, if someone gets sick and all that, and because that you start to understand your own situation better. And wow. this is very much like Plato's allegory of the cave is you yeah. start to imagine what if, so it's a hundred year starship project by <laughs> May Jennison and it's, it's an interdisciplinary project. Mm -hmm. And it's about imagining what what will be required for a starship, because you need to kind of have a contained ecosystem yeah. on the starship. Yeah, yeah. that but sounds it, really really interesting. Yeah. Also, a really nice thought experiment. Um, yeah, because you test the limits, right? Because that's one of the the moment you do that, you start to realize. Uh, so I would say the, the capitalist or the technical way of thinking. Yeah. It's like the isolated human being and we just put ourselves on Mars and we have the technology around us that, that will help us survive. But that's an illusion because we are off the earth. Yeah. And we live on this small sliver of 1% of the earth that we are aware of. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But it's amazing the planet that we're living on, and it's easier to look at the stars because you know that's that's up. But we can also look down. We can also breathe the air that's around us and think about that. And of course, the two are connected because there are other planets out there. And so if you if you go in between, you go sometimes you you go in your imagination. What would it take to build a hundred years starship? Yeah, ship. Yeah. Oh, I would need. Okay, I would need food. I would also need. The means to grow but we also would have a society so we also need social structures we also need education we also need childcare. we also and then if you start to do the not the math but draw that on paper yeah where do you get all the resources because we don't have an ecosystem yeah. like we have on uh, on earth yeah so it's like building an utopia like an exercise of building your own utopia and then you figure out most probably that it's not doable because we need the yeah. whole ecosystem of the and, earth, and right? Is, is that an is that a utopia? Because you start to as you know, you have to reduce, you have to think as much efficiently as possible, right? Yeah. Because you have to build all that stuff and you have to use a lot of energy to to build it. So it's like if you <laughs> I mean, if you see all the science fiction movies about space and spaceships, well, they don't really make you happy. It's really about efficiency. No, no, indeed, no. But the utopia is also not a utopia, right? So, so there's always something that's yeah. going on, which is really not utopian, but there's always a dystopian yeah. uh, turn towards it. But I like, the, I like this point that you made about it's also kind of a, a trigger of our imagination, because it reminds me of something that Adorno said about, so for instance, if I think about, I want to go to Paris because Paris is the city of love and romance. Mm. And that's kind of an imagination. And then it gets me, you know, I start to make plans and I actually go there. Yeah. But then the moment you're there, of course, it's like the streets are dirty and, and all that stuff. <laughs> Your luggage gets stolen. And 
but then you 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 don't say well it's it's not the city of love but then you say well you i'm too close to it to see it now the main thing is that it gets you into action and i think well circling back to the thing about the climate crisis and all yeah. that stuff we need to get into action and i think imagination is a very powerful way of getting people into action mm -hmm. are like there also the like pitfalls in using imagination yeah getting... for sure yeah what what kind of pitfalls well one pitfall is that like i said before we already live in our imagination so mm -hmm. the pitfall is that you think you're if that you can imagine something from scratch we have to recognize that our imagination is limited in a way yeah in, in what way would you say for instance i can say well okay like we have this podcast right mm -hmm. i ask you is it online or or do we do it live you said it's via zoom which is also what what i do in my podcast mm -hmm. but that means that i had to first of all think about oh yeah i'm i have an appointment with Tina in a few weeks I, I saw myself either taking the train or staying home behind my laptop and then I imagine okay it's behind my laptop so I can I can arrange my schedule yeah but a hundred years ago I don't know if people would imagine that a house a thousand years ago could you imagine something like that yeah so now it's very easy for us to imagine and some other things are harder to imagine but still possible like all the wonderful movies that we have out there but so you so, would say that the limits to our imagination are it could be a pitfall right because it's you yeah. said the pitfall is that our imagination can be very limited i guess the, the pitfall then is that we take it so that we're so there's kind of a hubris that we think we can imagine everything that's relevant mm -hmm. but we so, have boundaries to yeah. what we can imagine exactly and that's what you have in science you have that a lot that that more in science communication i guess about the idea that oh now we we have everything in the picture everything that's relevant is in the picture and so we can do this experiment or we can start to do this intervention like if you speak about geoengineering for mm -hmm. instance oh yeah but we've calculated everything and and we know it's it's safe yeah. And there's another another pitfall is that has to do with the groundedness. So I, I know you've talked to Vincent Ica before, yes. <laughs> and that's another thing we have in common. He puts <laughs> a lot of emphasis of, on the... the Isn't right? Yeah. Yeah. And the role of imagination in science, but you also, you can go, you can fly off and it's completely unrealistic. So you have to tie back your imagination oh, if I'm looking for a house, okay, I can imagine the biggest castle in the world, which is nice as an exercise. And it's very in enjoyable just to do a fantasy. Mm -hmm. But if I'm really serious about it, I have to, I, I better switch jobs or, or something like that. Or, yeah. So then it also helps to, okay, but let's go and look at some houses. So there's kind of this dialogue between Im imagination and let's say the real world. And it's a pitfall if you just get carried away yeah, and so there's you no say connection. That you have to be some kind of expert or or build an expertise in in imagination, in scientific imagination. Mm -hmm. So it really helps to go go visit museums and everything because the artists they are you know the masters of the imagination and they show they also show us what is possible. They also show us how you can look at a tree or how you can look at the everyday object. But that's also what scientists do, right? Like, yeah, they look at the most Definitely. everyday stuff and they start to imagine like, what if 
yeah. this thing is made of, I don't know, molecules. Yeah, <laughs> going back to imagining living on Mars or mining the moon, whatever you think of it, it's also really an exercise of the imagination. And I think it's a very interdisciplinary one as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so tying or combining artworks or the perspective that artists have on the world with scientific embodiment, so to say, I think that really brings new insights. And I'm happy to learn that more and more people are getting involved in interdisciplinary projects, doing interdisciplinary podcasts, yeah, because it breaks boundaries. One question also, because you wrote an article about abduction. Speaking yeah. about limitations, for example, not, not, the, not the criminal kind. No, <laughs> <laughs> so it was a, an article about abduction, creative leaps in theory, the, the might of abduction. Could you explain how abduction is connected to the use of imagination? Yeah, it's connected to, I think, everything we've talked about so far. I yeah. think the main reason why I wanted to write about it is because I've been seeing in the discourse that on the one hand, there starts to be a recognition of the importance of art and imagination and, and all those kind of things for like science or health, healthcare. But they're still seen as two things that are both important. But abduction shows that we are already always imagining, even if we're doing the most rational action, which is like logic, logical inference, like yeah. deducing and inducing and testing hypothesis and, and all that stuff. So induction shows that, yeah, but there's already create creativity involved, like creative leaps is a phrase by Mika Ball, who, who also wrote about mm -hmm. this. But, so that's why I wanted to write about it because it's like, yeah, but even the most, so I always try to look at something. So you want to talk about something, imagination, but try to look if what is not imagination, what people don't consider imagination and try to see if that, if you can find imagination there also wow. so it's and, a research method actually yeah it, it it's just part of a research method yeah yeah so a you really it, interesting one i think hmm. yeah it's i mean you because we always think in these binary oppositions but yeah. those are just that's just the way our mind works yeah that's not how the world works the world doesn't care about poor or rich or left or right <laughs> It's one it's just, big gray area. That's with just our exactly. That's maybe like the machinery of our standard imagination is that okay, we start with it doesn't matter what we're going to talk about next, but we already know it's a binary opposition. Yeah. Yeah, because something is the case or it is not, right? Otherwise you can't really make decisions. So you have to yeah. choose something is the case or not, but it's indeed very binary. But then the key is that you think that way because you have to make a decision. Yeah. Yes. But, but okay, but that's that's your problem. <laughs> you you want to make <laughs> yeah, a decision. That's not I mean, how the, the world, world doesn't care. Yeah. No, exactly. So something. I mean, you could say, okay, for instance, I didn't make this up, but like I, I've been talking to flat earthers a, a way back because I think mm -hmm. that's very interesting. So people say, well, what is the case? The Earth is flat it's not round because the earth cannot be both flat and both round but so then it's easy to say well they're wrong because the earth is round mm -hmm. so it's not flat because it cannot be flat and round but then i think Vsauce he makes youtube videos yeah he made this video about well i mean then, then the next thing is like okay it depends so that's also where the imagination comes from imagine that the earth is flat 
Mm-hmm. You start with that's a fact in our ima- so we're playing this fantasy game and yeah. the first like fact is the earth is flat. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But then you have to think about in what world or yeah. what circumstances would the earth be flat? Okay, so, so you have to build the world around the f- the flat yeah, earth. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. And you can it's also a fun game if you think, okay, what if in in a hundred years our children would have like a very prosperous world and what world would we have to build around that to make that happen? So that's, yeah. it's another approach. But so when is the earth flat? It depends on the laws of physics about because something is not round or flat, but it occurs to you as round or flat. And how something occurs to you depends on your relation to this, let's say, object. For instance, the speech at speed at which you approach it. So if you go fast enough towards the earth, the earth becomes flat. Mm. Because it's just like this this sliver because of relativity, which uh, physics, which you probably know more about than me. No, <laughs> I so would say that. But the, you <laughs> would have to say, okay, the earth is round from the perspective of someone who is at a relatively slow speed slow speed or like relative to the earth right yeah and is look and you have so if you want to say that you have to make all the assumptions that we make explicit so someone who can see shapes for instance Mm -hmm. (laughs) so we have to you have to assume shapes you have all this all this stuff that you have to assume in order to say well the earth is round it's really funny because i had a conversation previous week and I was writing a short post about it I wanted to post it like before we had our conversation but then I I needed to thought about it some more about flatland uh, which is exactly also an exercise of the imagination building a world of flatlanders so there's no there's just this one dimension that figures live in Mm -hmm. and it's an exercise of the imagination which really can bring new insights into math for example Mm -hmm. So I found that I always think of these kind of things and exercises. It really brings a sense of wonder to me because it opens up new possibilities to look at the world. Do you have that same experience when you do these kinds of exercises or what role does Wonderman play in your work? Yeah, exactly. It's well, in my work, I wouldn't say I would be, it would be the other way around. I'm just like in Wonderment and all the time no not all the time but a lot of times and yeah (laughs) i'm trying to arrange my life so that i can be busy with that and not be distracted by things that other people find very interesting but i i don't really care about Mm -hmm. so that's uh, awesome yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah but that's i mean that's one wonderment is like okay so one we talked about education so that's a book I'm, i'm working on right now and and one of the things i start with is that I'm sorry to interrupt you. It's a book that you're working on. Yeah. Are oh, you working on the book Education? Yes. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. But uh, that's indeed. the wonderment is for me. It's like, whoa, what? There's so much room for growth everywhere. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I have no idea what the world will look like in 20, 30 years and what yeah. will be required for that. Yeah. So, but if we know this, because we can look at science and science will tell us, okay, we can. We cannot tell you exactly what things will look like, but we, we can tell you that it will be. And if you speak about the most pressing thing in education system, I think it will be about recognizing that our own limits. And mm-hmm. that means that you have to pay attention to very basic things like self-confidence, thinking for yourself, yeah, being creative, 
those are things we will really need but also we need to learn to appreciate food and and farming yeah and those are things that are you know reconnecting us to the earth that we live on wow i think that's so a great way to to end this conversation <laughs> to, end this, to end this podcast so someone just has to do it thank you so much for this conversation yeah, wonderful thank you. having you and well we will stay in contact because i think that we will have another conversation yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna be <laughs> that one asking the questions next time okay nice okay well thank you so much and till next thank you <laughs> for more information links and show notes visit scientificimagination.org.